morning, a few thoughts for you, and I got a couple of questions for you uh, to think about and consider, and hopefully we can answer at least one of them, one of the questions we can answer together. We'll see about the other one. Um, I want to say what I know you feel as well, and that is that I love the local church. Um, I love this local church. I love every local church that I was a part of growing up, even as I reflect back on my own story as a follower of Christ, and I know the same is true for you. Um, I can say, and it's no exaggeration, that I have been formed by each of the local churches that I've been a part of in my, you know, spiritual formation during my life. Um, truly and really and truly been shaped by these local churches. Um, everything that I Everything that I know um, about the divine began in a local church. Some of, my, some of my sweetest memories are set within the relationships that were formed through the local church that I was involved with, one or the other of them. Um, I can say that today nearly all, well, I can, and I, I can say all of my best friendships um, have their origin in a local church season in my life. I can say, in addition, that um, as I think about all of the like quantitative spiritual steps forward that I've made in my life um, in terms of spiritual growth, as I think about those moments, and it's not like there's a whole lot of them, don't get me wrong, uh, but all of those steps that I can think of are in some way related to my connectedness to uh, a community of believers in a local church. And those are just some of the facets of what I mean when I say that I love the local church. Um, have there been instances where my experience in the church was less than ideal? <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, that's also true. But still, I love the local church, and I know that you feel the same way. So having said all that, here's, here's my question that I'd like for you to think about. Um, don't answer too soon, but think about uh, what is the purpose of the local church? Why does, why does it exist? Why do we exist? And this is not a trick question. I really want you to think about it. I've given you my own perspective or sort of a basket of um, just thoughts of mine as I reflect upon the role that the local church has played in my life. But I'd like for you to consider that question as it relates to your own experience for those of you who have been a part of faith community. Um, so I think that for me, my own reflexive answer to that question, what is the purpose of the local church, I think for me sort of reflexively, my answer to that question, what's the purpose, would come from among that basket of, of reflections that I just gave to you in terms of relationships and spiritual growth and whatever. Uh, I think my answer on my own would come from that category or those, some of those kinds of categories. But, but I ask you, for your own perspective, what would you say, at least right now, and again, I'm, we're going somewhere with all this this morning, hopefully. So, but what would you say? What is the purpose of 
the local church? Well, it's, well it's, it's where we learn about faith. It's where we learn about Christ. It's where we learn the Bible. We learn about the divine. Maybe someone would say, well, that's where we learn to be good people. That's where we learn kind of the, the structure of a moral life, right? Or maybe someone might say, well, you know, based on my experience, the purpose of the local church is potluck suppers, you know? Uh, maybe someone would say that. Or again, from like from what I just said, someone might say that um, the purpose of the local church is, is friendships, Christ-centered, spiritually nourishing uh, friendships. Someone might say the local church is, is where I look to for, you know, inspiration that's beyond skin deep. Um, someone might say something like that. Or someone might say, well, the purpose of the local church is, is to preach the gospel. And someone might sincerely ask on the heels of that, well, what, what does that mean to preach the gospel? And they might say further, well, it's, it's to get people saved. And okay, so what does that mean, right? You know, these are questions that we really have to press upon. Well, well, so that people go to heaven when they die. Okay, so then we put all that back together and we say, okay, so someone's answer might be the purpose of the local church um, is to, to see to it that people go to heaven when they die. <laughs> Maybe somebody might, might say that. I'm just saying there's a variety of ways that we might answer this question, and not all of those are mutually exclusive, of course. But with that question hanging in the air, I want to ask you another question to also consider before we get to this passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can open it or turn it on and begin to find Ephesians chapter 3. So the first question is, what's the purpose of the local church? And the second question is, however it is that you or I or we might answer that first question, the second question is, can we... Is it possible for us to pursue that purpose in the mode that we're in right now, in this current state with the pandemic and the quarantine? And I'm going to go ahead and say uh, that this is a transitional state. It won't be like this forever. And yet I think, again, from my own perspective, uh, whatever it is that we return to, I suspect, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, we probably ought to think not in terms of returning to normal, but probably in terms of returning to some new normal. So, so is it possible, however we answer that question, what's the purpose of the local church? The second very real, very important, obviously pressing question is, However we answer that question about the purpose of the local church, is it possible for us to pursue that purpose in our current transitional mode and going forward into the new normal? Those are the two twin questions that are on my mind this morning as we study, and um, I know that you're on, they're on your mind as well. So with that, let's look at this passage from the writings of the Apostle Paul, his letter to the church uh, at Ephesus. This is Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. And I'm going to read this whole paragraph, and then we're going to make our way through it uh, kind of thought by thought. Okay, here we go. Uh, he writes, Of this gospel, I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. 
Although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. What a beautiful phrase. And to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. Okay, this is not only a mouthful, this is a brainful. These are some uh, giant thoughts, and I have to admit, um, it even uh, for me, and I suspect for all of us, uh, there are some phrases here that we have to unpack a little bit in order to put back together um, what's going on. I want to focus in, first of all, because we'll come back to this, and where the Apostle Paul identifies himself as uh, less than the least of all the Lord's people. Paul, the Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, evangelized the entire known world in his day. <laughs> he writes that he is least of among all, less than the least of all the Lord's people. And I just want to say, like, reflexively, naturally, my response to that is, seriously, Paul, you can't mean that. You can't mean what you just said. I mean, how could, how could that be? That can't possibly tr be true, because if we know anything at all, what we know is that God would never appoint anyone less than impeccable to such a prominent role, right, in the history of redemption, the history of uh, the Jesus Revolution, et cetera, right? Because so, so we know that Paul really can't mean what he says, right? Because, again, you know, I mean, honestly, if we know anything about the church, the church is where good people go to be good. And so if you're going to be in the lead in the church, you're going to be the goodest of the good, not the least of the least, right? I mean, that's like how our thinking goes. And yet, there it is right there for us. And actually, um, English translators have done a pretty good job uh, with this. He says, although uh, I am the very least of all the saints, um, uh, Less than the least, another translation has in English, and, and it's because actually the scholars tell us in, uh, in the original language, Paul actually made up a word here. Uh, he uses the word for least, but then adds a, a comparative suffix to the word. So actually, if we wanted to translate it literally, we would have to say that Paul said he is the leastest. He is the leastest among, among all uh, God's people. Of course, that doesn't work in English, so some English translators have less than the least. Okay, so... He says, I'm less than the least among all of God's people, and yet I've been given this mission to preach the boundless riches of Christ. The riches of Christ, he says, have no bounds, no limit, no stopping point. We are in the realm of infinity, the limitless, boundless riches of Christ. Okay, then we get to verse 9. Notice what verse 9 says has for us. And he says, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, if you're 
making notes or marking in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle that phrase so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Always try to pay attention to the so that's, just like it is in English when you're talking to somebody or somebody's talking to you, same when you're reading scripture, always try to pay attention to the so that's, right? So this is the answer. Why is it that Paul does what Paul does? For what purpose does Paul think God has dropped this mission into his lap? What is the purpose of all of Paul's work, which is, by the way, wrapped up in uh, crafting these communities, these faith communities uh, throughout the regions where he uh, presented the message of Christ. Paul was a church planter. Let's just put it that way. So why is it? What is the purpose of all of Paul's work? Well, it's found in the so that in this passage. Look what it says specifically. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. <laughs> uh, we're going to try to unpack that. Um, but so if that's our question, in Paul's mind, what is the purpose of the church? In Paul's mind, everybody, it's right here. So that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the powers through the church or rulers and authorities in the heavenly Places. What does Paul mean by that? And this is, I think, where um, when I say there's some language in here that takes some effort for us to unpack to, in order to put back the meaning, this is one of those phrases that I'm referring to. What does Paul mean when he talks about rulers and authorities in the heavenly places or heavenly realms? It's a phrase that he uses uh, uh, frequently throughout his letters. Well, there's different ways to, to say it. Paul here is referring to what we might call the powers that be. Um, the powers that are, forces that rule and run the world, forces that rule and run ultimately our lives, individually and collectively. He's talking about the currents and riptides that make the world go round, so to speak. See, for Paul and for much of the ancient world in which he inhabited, there are human and spiritual phenomenon that works seamlessly in tandem in the world and in our life experience. They are these, these powers are not entirely human and they're not entirely spiritual, but they're both operating in tandem together. These powers, rulers and authorities he's talking about, they are composed of desires and cravings within the human heart, and these cravings are tantalized and drawn out by dark spiritual forces. And when these cravings multiply and gather together, they become systemic and systematic forces in our world. That's, this is what Paul is getting to. He's talking about something that's not entirely human. And he's talking about something that's not entirely spiritual, but something that is human spiritual in tandem together. And these ultimately become the institutions of power. They become rulers and authorities in the seat of power. And because these systemic 
powers are guided by, in part, dark spiritual forces that are ultimately expressed through human beings. They therefore tend toward destructive and dehumanizing expressions of power. That's what Paul's saying. This is why he says, by the way, the manifold, variegated um, wisdom of the creator is positioned here as counter to these powers, right? He's describing a confrontation. He's describing a, uh, a challenge. God, he positions here, is creator. God loves his creation. So when you think God as creator, you think God as lover. God, that's, that's the Jewish story that Paul inherits from. Uh, that, that creation itself is the overflowing of the love of God. God created all that is for no other reason, out of no other motivation than love. That's the story that Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. And wisdom, God's wisdom in the context, talking about a, the conversation about God as creator then. Now, wisdom is about the implementation of the love of the creator putting into practice his love into creation, it, as expressed into creation. In other words, what you could kind of put all this together, and what Paul is getting at here is the havoc uh, of the powers being wreaked upon the world is the opposite of the wisdom of the divine creator God. The the force of the powers is the force of anti-creation, the destruction of creation. And in contrast, the wisdom of the creator God unleashed into the world always leads toward the redemption and the flourishing of the world, toward all creation. That's, that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about uh, rulers and authorities in heavenly realms uh, contra the wisdom of God in its various forms, right? So remember, remember the big so that here. Let's back up and kind of try to put, put all this back together. So he says, the mission that I've been given uh, to present the boundless riches of Christ, he says all that, and he gets to this, so that through the church, the wisdom of God might be made known, revealed to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In other, words, in other words, everybody, what Paul is saying is that the church is God's great challenge and confrontation against the powers that stand to wreak havoc against creation. The church as it exists, not through, not through what the church says, although what we say is certainly important, but essentially he's talking about our being. The fact that the church is is a confrontation against the powers that tend toward destruction in the world. This unified yet diverse community of love, forgiveness, and harmony. The church, he says, is a many-splendored, variegated, manifold, relational community of men, women, and children of every race, color, social background, cultural subgroup, richer or poor, all flowing together in joyful worship of the one true God. And it is that 
unified diversity, uh, that diversified harmony <laughs> that stands as an announcement to the powers that a new age has dawned. A new reality has broken through. Their time is up. Their rule, destructive rule over creation has come to an end. That's what Paul's saying here. Isn't that stunning? So think about it, though. You kind of break it down. Um, isn't it true, wouldn't you agree, that the forces that make the world go round, so to speak, if we could say it that way, generally, in fact, do so by dividing people against one another? Wouldn't you agree? That that tends to be like the core MO of the forces that make the world go round, separating people into more or less homogenous subgroups and then aligning us within our subgroups against one another? Isn't that more or less the way the tyrannical forces of culture tend to operate? We call it, we have different names for it. We call it class warfare, um, uh, racism, systemic racism, racial tension, racialization, whatever phrase you want to use. Same core phenomenon, you know, the blue collar versus white collar, management versus labor. I mean, it just goes, it goes on and on. The haves and the have nots, um, uh, even generational division from younger to older. You know, the, anybody see the OK Boomer meme, right? Um, we end up divided along those lines. I mean, on and on and on and on that list could go. The point is, it seems to be that the, the, the tyrannical forces, the powers that be, more or less uh, push us around by means of division. And then here comes this new and odd, bizarre and strange, refreshing and challenging, let's call it a social experiment, <laughs> called the church. Um, in its very constitution and makeup, it confronts and challenges the powers that rule by means of fragmentation. That's what Paul is presenting here. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, the great scholar, particularly Pauline scholar, reflecting on this idea from the writings of the Apostle Paul, F.F. F. Bruce said that the, the local church is an object lesson in divine wisdom. That for Paul, the local church is an object lesson of divine wisdom. And so this is not most particularly about our preaching nor about our evangelism really or any other expression in particular. This is more about our mere existence. The fact that we, the church, exist as a loving, unified fellowship of diversity across social lines, racial lines, economic lines, our very existence is a challenge and an affront to the powers that drive and dehumanize the world. And remember, for Paul, you know, his great ambition, and I'm, I, I insist that it's okay to call it that. I don't mean it in a, in a, in a um, pejorative way. I mean his, I think, spirit-given ambition was to unify within his churches we could say it that way, um, the two social groups who were most at odds with one another 
in his day, that being Jews and Gentiles. So when we, when we enter into Paul's thinking, and he's talking about this manifold wisdom, this diverse uh, group of people coming together, we're talking not only all different kinds of Gentiles, but we're talking about Jews and all different kinds of Jews and all different kinds of Gentiles together in one diverse yet unified family. Um, so this is an enormous, enormous thing uh, to engage. Um, and yet the essence here is that what Paul is saying is that there are forces that are dehumanizing and destroying the world, and they work by division. And so God's great testimony uh, and, and, and action in the world and healing the world are these diverse yet unified communities. This is what represents the challenge to the powers that divide and dehumanize the world. You could, you could say it kind of maybe in the complete opposite way. When people who are like one another cluster together, that doesn't say anything new to the surrounding world. I'll say it like that. When a bunch of middle-class Americans cluster together with other middle-class Americans and do whatever they do, whether we cluster physically or digitally, and we're going to try to incorporate this in just a minute, um, that doesn't threaten in the least the powers that be. When people with, with white skin huddle over here and people with brown skin huddle over here, the surrounding world yawns. There's nothing new, nothing fresh about that. When the haves huddle together over here and the have-nots huddle together over there, the powers can only be ever more satisfied that their leverage remains firmly intact. When North American Republicans huddle over here in their little Republican cloister and North American Democrats huddle over here in their little Democrat spiritual cloister, um, the forces that rely upon division for their power are only ever more comforted and assured that their regime remains secure. But when all of that division is suddenly swallowed up in a new reign of grace-saturated unity, now all of a sudden, uh, the surrounding world is compelled to take notice. Something in that scenario is new. Something is fresh. Something is breaking breaking out. This is not more of the same. This is new. This is different. This is revolutionary. When social groups that are far too typically at odds with one another suddenly enter into unity relationally and relational harmony and joyful fellowship together, this is the revolution healing, redeeming, revolution. Or, in Paul's language, this is what unveils the manifold wisdom of God, lovingly restoring his divine order to his creation in all of its unified diversity, diversified unity, however you want to say it. So, this is what Paul 
is getting at. That the church, in its very essence, in its very being, in its very constitution, is the revelation of this manifold wisdom of God and representing, embodying this kind of confrontation against the powers that divide, destruct, and dehumanize creation. Um, so, back to our question. What is the purpose of the local church? Has your answer changed this morning as we've reflected on this paragraph from the Apostle Paul? Or is your answer maybe starting to change? Because here's the thing, if I could just say this rather bluntly. Regardless of what my answer may have been to that question, based upon my own experience, my own observation, you know, in my own journey, um, this is the answer to the question. God's intended purpose for the church is that through who we are as a united, reconciled, forgiving, boundary-crossing, cross-cultural, cross-racial, cross-gender, diverse community of oddballs in harmony together, we stand in our very being, essence, and constitution, in our makeup. We stand as a challenge and a confrontation against the powers that destroy through division, alienation, strife, competition, warfare, whatever. Um, this is the answer to the question. Now, second question, and they say they, whoever they are, those who, those who, um, who attempted to educate me in public speaking, they say that in public communication, you shouldn't ask a question that you don't intend to answer. Uh, and I'm about to violate that rule right now. Because um, the second question is, is it possible for us to pursue this actually from the beginning unchanging purpose of the local church in our current mode? Is it possible? In other words, the question that I pose, the first question, what's the purpose of the local church? Um, I want to insist that the answer to that question is what Paul has laid out for us here in this paragraph, and it is unchanging. Uh, this is the answer to the question for Paul in his context, in his time. This is the answer uh, for the church in every place and at every time in history, in every culture. It's the same answer in terms of the purpose of the local church. The second question, though, is much more localized to our time right now. Is it possible for us to pursue that purpose um, in the current place and mode where we are and into whatever the new normal becomes. Um, and I, and I want to say that the answer has to be yes, and yet at the same time, just to be candid, um, it's going to take some fresh ideas and some creativity, uh, some new thinking for thinking about how to 
how to pursue this unchanging purpose for the local church uh, in a circumstance that is very new um, for us. Some people, some people say we shouldn't call these unprecedented times because that might indicate a lack of familiarity with history <laughs> that other people have experienced. But I can say certainly from my familiarity, certainly my life experience, these are unprecedented times. Nobody taught, nobody taught you how, in seminary, nobody talked about how to do church in this environment. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so it's going to take some, uh, some collaboration, some creativity, some fresh ideas for how to go about being who we are and pursuing the unchanging purpose that we share together as a faith community in order to, 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 uh, to fully, I don't mean this, I don't mean to be overly optimistic, but I think if you'll give me some space, I want to say that what I'd like for us to do as we collaborate together is to embrace this somehow, right? There has to be new opportunities hidden, hidden away in this current um, environment mode that we're in. So the purpose hasn't changed, but pursuing that purpose, achieving that purpose, um, maximizing that um, has got to change. So, uh, so with that, I just want to end off <coughs> where we began with what I pointed out, at least to me, is a very odd comment that Paul really begins this thought with. So let me say it this way. So for us, the question is, okay, assuming we get that, assuming we understand that thought about the purpose of the church, okay, we are to be this living, breathing announcement to the world that healing has come, right? Like together has replaced division. Reconciliation has replaced combative, jealous competition. Embrace has replaced alienation. Community has replaced schism, right? So assuming we get that, right, that's the, that's the thing, right? The question then becomes, how do we achieve and sustain that reality? And that is, of course, an enormous and important question. And I kind of think, not kind of, I think, I believe, that it's in this context that Paul's initial comment actually is, not just a throwaway line and not just false humility. He's actually saying something that is operative in achieving and maintaining this vision of diversified harmony, harmonious diversity, etc. His whole flow of thought, right? Listen how it begins. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, he even makes up that word, I am the leastest of all God's people. What does that claim have to do with what he says through the rest of this paragraph? What, is it, what does it have to do to, to begin by saying, I am the leastest among all God's people? What does that have to do with sustaining fellowship, with sustaining this cross-cultural, cross-racial, cross-gender, cross-economic, social experiment called the church? What does that claim of being the leastest have to do 
with sustaining this kind of diversified community? The answer is, it has everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. Um, and you don't need um, my help extrapolating that. But I just want to remind you of a story that some of you already know that really is kind of a case study in the opposite of the view that Paul presents here. Um, as 21st century Americans, we know our nation's history among the settlers here in the New World. Uh, there were the Puritans. Who were the Puritans? Well, they were Anglicans from England who wanted to purge the church, among other things, of all vestiges of Catholicism. They, they had lived through years of back and forth and warfare um, between a Catholic-dominated state in England and then flipped to a Protestant-dominated state in, in England and all the uh, warfare and bloodshed that had gone on through those times. These Puritans had lived through that, uh, and they wanted in the New World a place to find uh, a truly pure church that was free from all of that manipulation by, by the state. And this is why uh, many of us as Americans, this is why we consider the separation of church and state to be not just an important uh, doctrine of civil, civil law, but, but even a necessary component of civil law spelled out explicitly. Um, and so we might say by another way of saying it that the Puritans came here in the quest to stand up a pure, perfect, authentic, biblical church. That was their quest. That was their aim. Is that a noble goal? Certainly. Is this an admirable aim? No doubt about it. But is there an unintended dark side to this pursuit? You better betcha there is. Um, there's a case in point. Um, the story of a man by the name of Roger Williams. He was a 17th century Puritan minister who came to America in search of a pure church. So he first landed here in Boston. Uh, he became a pastor of the church there in Boston, and I'm summarizing a whole long story. But very soon, Roger Williams became frustrated with the impurities in that Boston church. And so he pulled up stakes and moved out to found a new colony where he could establish a new church that would finally be the pure, you know, the pure church. And so he, he founded the colony that is, was eventually known as Providence, Rhode Island. Well, eventually, Roger Williams again became dissatisfied with this new church in Providence, Rhode Island. So he pulled up stakes and pulled out of that church as well because he was so dissatisfied with the impurities among the people. And at that point, William's story becomes a little bit of a, like a repeat broken record. And so just to summarize and kind of fast forward to the end of his life, um, Williams eventually left every local church that he was ever a part of over his own frustration over the impurities uh, in those local churches. And he spent his later years worshiping at home only with his family. His own sincere desire, in other words, for the perfect, pure church 
in the end, destroyed that very community. Isn't that ironic? He was the first American, we could say, to embody what we now, what now has become kind of a popular phrase. He loved Jesus, but not the church. I don't know if you've heard anybody say that. Uh, Roger Williams, in that sense, maybe was a, ahead of his time. <laughs> um, he embodied this ironic pattern because he failed to recognize something central to what the church actually is. And that is that the church and all of its locations and all of its expressions in all times and all cultures, the church is in the end a messy social experiment with the essential aim being unity in fellowship even over moral perfection. Or we might say that the perfect church is one that invests all of its energy into unity across its diversity and failings and all of that rather than one directly seeking moral perfection uh, per se. You know, this trait didn't begin with Roger Williams. Even in the New Testament, you read through the book of Acts, the early church from its various days, it had its bumps and bruises and its rough spots and its weaknesses. You think about Paul confronting Peter when Peter suddenly began to behave kosher when the leaders from the Jerusalem church showed up and, and Peter suddenly, you know, he won't share meals with the Gentiles all of a sudden and Paul confronts. I mean, you have all kinds of problems that are in the, the local church. But one thing you never see is you never see the Roger Williams response, right? Like I'm going to pull up stakes and get away from these impure, you know, people and start the real pure church. You never see that in the book of Acts. What you see is people working together and working through stuff, you know, even with their failures and shortcomings. See, Roger Williams was seeking, you know, solid people in order to create a solid church. But for Paul, the church is made up of broken people who are in various stages of healing through reconciliation and community. R Roger Williams, he wanted a church made up of lovable people. But for Paul, the church was filled with people who are unlovable, at least at certain times, but who are loved nevertheless because of God's unfathomable grace. Roger Williams, he wanted a church that was clean and pristine and free of defect. But for Paul, the church is messy. A family that is at times glorious and at times completely dysfunctional, but always bathed in God's grace. Roger Williams wanted a church of great people. But Paul himself, he says, no, it's the opposite. The way this unity is achieved and flourishes is that when every one of us acknowledges that we are the leastest among all of God's people, I am the leastest of the leastest. That is the beginning of this kind of glorious, rare, healing, diverse unity. 
just one more quote here. Um, I don't think this has made it to your notes, but there's well-known kind of hero for many, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's well-known for his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Um, he has a quote along these lines, stated a bit differently, but the same idea. Bonhoeffer says, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So what he's saying, he's basically pointing to the Roger Williams syndrome. He's saying whenever, whenever we love this idealized thing that we think of as the church that ought to be, when we love that idea more than we love what actually is, then we actually become a destroyer of what is, right? So all that to say, the church is the body of Christ. We are beautiful collectively in loving unity. We are the manifold, many-splendored wisdom of God. Um, so what's the purpose of the church? It is what it's always been. That in our unified diversity, we become a confrontation and a challenge against the powers that are, that are pushing us around, seeking to divide us and align us against one another. We become a challenge to those forces. That's our calling. That's what we're called to do in this time or in any other time in this culture or in any other culture. The question for us today, and, and I mean this, I'm asking this question without answering it, is, is it possible for us to go about pursuing this unchanging purpose in the current circumstance and I want to say the answer is yes, but the follow-on question is where I think we're going to need to be creative and collaborate, is that is how, right? I know we can, but how do we do it? Um, and, and I mean it when I say I invite your collaboration in that question. We got to figure that out um, for how to be the church in this time and in this place. Um, for those of you who are watching by live stream, um, and I know this applies to many of you, that you miss being together with your church family. You miss hugging and kissing and high-fiving and all that. Um, and yet, for very good reasons, you remain at home participating by live stream. I want you to know I respect that. And I, I see you. I hear you. I identify um, with, with your choice. There are still many, many unknowns. There are still many, many risks associated with what's going on. We just had conversation earlier this morning um, of a dear friend of one of our team members here who, um, whose, whose body responded very, very poorly to this virus, right? Like that's what's going on. And uh, she is right now having a very, very difficult time with her physical health. So I get it. Um, and yet, at the same time, our purpose 
as a faith community is enduring. And we can figure this out. We can figure out how to be the church in the current um, situation. And I know that we will do so. And so sincerely, I said everything I said this morning to sincerely invite your collaboration in this. We need fresh ideas. We need creativity for how to do this in the now, in the right now. And again, I think to a degree, it's going to apply into the new normal, whatever that becomes. So that's my invitation to you. All right? Let's pray.